Welcome to Bad Impressions, the podcast about when you just want to advertise something, but it goes horribly awry. You know, obviously there's no personal injury to anyone. It, it just damages the collective human psyche. This week, we are very excited to have Shana Stewart on. Shana, do you want to introduce yourself? Hey, uh, Shana Stewart. I'm excited to be on the show today. Thanks for inviting me. As you'll see throughout the episode, my career started on the analytics side, and then I've journeyed over into the product strategy and growth strategy side. So hope to share a little bit about my journey today. Bridging two organizational elements that can frequently find each other at odds and can frequently have trouble hooking up. So I, I think we're going to get a lot of incredible insights and wisdom out of Shanna. Before we get into that, interesting week in digital marketing news that is both timeless and timely. Theoretically, depending on if any of these acquisitions we're going to talk about hold their value for more than one year. Salesforce bought Slack uniting probably the most overly dry, professional, and unexciting tool in the workplace with the most wildly, inappropriately fun and productivity-destroying tool in the workplace. I'll leave it to the audience to decide which is which. Anyone have any thoughts on the merger of Salesforce and Slack? I don't know what the big deal about this really is. And I think you kind of just hit it strangely on the head, you know, of, of using Slack uh, now in, in kind of multiple places. I always would define it as a jungle gym and it positioned itself as this necessary IEM communications across the company and everyone can quickly converse. And then, but then like there's like groups and that group just becomes a hilarity, which is great and fine. But from someone who's trying to get someone from their team to do something, you know, and be the, the version of Salesforce in terms of productivity and requesting deliverables out of someone. And then you see them like jabbering away and having a grand old time on a group Slack. I'm like, get to work. Um, Isn't get kind of roulette? <laughs> yeah. Or that was, that was a, <laughs> that was a grand old time, early days of, of Slack in 2016 of just. David Big um, Merv accidentally posted a lewd GIF using roulette. And for a whole hour, someone was like, what's going on in general? And everyone was like, you just missed boobs. Not a professional tool. You don't remember that, David? No. Oh, my God. A senior creative director turned his jiffy safety off and typed something perfectly innocent and summoned a jiff with bare breasts to the company general Slack channel and panickedly deleted it. I definitely remember that. And I think I had a similar incident, but it was just in our team Slack. So it wasn't nearly as bad. I, but I was like three months into the job. Yeah. I thought you were saying I did that. And I was like, I do not remember doing that. And <laughs> no one brought it up to me ever <laughs> if it was me. So no, it, was, it was big Merv. If you remember uh, that guy. No, don't. I don't think I crossed paths with him. But yeah, so Slack as a product of Salesforce or an L, like a, an umbrella element seems strange. I can't seem to figure out like what the big deal is or even like how profitable Slack could be in the future. I mean, I think the, the saturation is probably as dense as it's going to be. And so in terms of future growth and those kind of things, I think it's just going to have to be, they just start increasing their pricing or have like different tiers and start moving people up, or they're going to start bundling shit together in terms of the Salesforce function and feature with Slack and try to like bridge the gap. I don't know if there's a cross-pollination angle any thoughts on customer and, and Facebook? The other big news one from anyone here? 
I'll confess I had no idea what customer was until today. I thought we had long moved past the just replace a C with a K customer name era also, but still hot. Uh, is that the white trash spelling of customer? You know, replace the, the K with the C or the C? I don't know. You know, I think, you know, this, does Facebook need a CRM? Doesn't Facebook have a CRM on the back end that they couldn't just productize? What's the special sauce of, of customer or were they just the only CRM software company that was up for sale and Facebook just thought it would be a great opportunity to have it work or have it be a business expense like tax write-off if they have to like shutter it in a year? I don't know. I guess I'm being very cynical this evening as we record this, but I don't know if any of these two purchases make any sense, but that's also why I get paid the little bucks at an advertising agency. So that's why you don't work at Elliott Capital. That's also management. Very true. Management. <laughs> we covered this in the last episode's QA, Randy. I ruined it for everyone. You Maybe that's a spinoff. Elliott Capital in the future. Yeah, that's the spinoff of this this whole podcast is Let's we just and I make go together of we, we throw our nickels together and we just hope for the best. <laughs> We're now gonna have the acquisition speculation hour sponsored by Elliott Management. <laughs> anyway, since our only sponsor otherwise is the Maggie Riley, one exciting location in New York. Anyway, let's let's get to the actually good part of the podcast. You can hear bald and or bespectacled white guys talk about Silicon Valley investments anywhere, but it's time to differentiate, baby. (laughs) So anyway, Shana has some fantastic ideas in regards to the ubiquitous KPI, which was the subject of our first episode, but also a lot of marketing measurement strategy, the interaction of measurement and strategy in general. And I think she actually has a, a fantastic metaphor for a classic, more human flaw and personality-driven problem that happens with marketing campaigns. So, Shana, you know, let's start the therapy. Tell us about your anxiety about having an ugly baby. (laughs) Yes, please. So I'm sure everybody has heard this term before, and you hear it a lot when you're on the analytics side. And I used to have a boss who would say, we're going to have to tell them that their baby's ugly. Uh, So the the idea became not to present the data as it should, just as the facts, but how do we have this soft skill around telling someone some bad news? And it really wasn't until I was thinking about this term and I was thinking back to when I was 15 years old and sitting in a restaurant with my friends. And my one friend was kind of talking really loud and asking, what if my baby's ugly? And right as she said that, a woman in a stroller came up and said, your baby will never be ugly to you. And thinking back on that moment and my journey from the analytics side to the the product side, there was never more true statement because at the end of the day, when you're on the product side, you're doing tons of research, you're building strategies, you're putting yourself out there and ultimately getting data back on that. And so when you're getting data back, you're not really going to judge if your baby was ugly or not. You're just going to say, it was my baby. <laughs> so Those kids were just particularly mean in that one kindergarten class. <laughs> yeah. So with that and that kind of approach, which I, th- I think you witnessed that a lot in different industry spectrums from performance marketing to any sort of digital advertising all the way to product development and those kind of things. With the thought of no one's baby is ever ugly to themselves, how do you 
either protect against confirmation bias or stave that off from another person only wanting to hear what they want to hear in terms of like the analytics and or the data, what you know, what the infamous data will, will tell us. Yeah, I think that's a, a good question. So something you said, what the infamous data will tell us, which is the data won't really tell you anything and you are putting the value judgment with that data. So, you know, as an, as an analyst, and sometimes I joke about this, is I can make a report about anything. I can make the data look good and I can make the data look really bad. And so it's really about being honest with yourself and how do you want to measure yourself and your project or your baby so that you're learning. I don't think that there's really ever an instance where us as professionals should say, hey, we did a good job and then that's it and never do anything else with that data. And you don't learn ultimately from that. And I think, you know, going back to your tightly rolled KPI episode, you talk a lot about that. And if you think about what a KPI is, it's a key performance indicator. It's already impressing that you have to perform well. It's actually judging your performance and it's going to tell you if your baby's ugly or not. And so you have to think about data in a different way of what are you learning from it, not what is it telling you. Yeah, I think that's what's also like really interesting about coming out of that conversation and, and now, you know, like just how ubiquitous KPIs in are, are across all of the different sections that we all now touch. KPIs are binary. You know, it's like you did well or you didn't do well, you know? And so I think, you know, as, as we kind of like get through this conversation and kind of get maybe like one of your big thesis statements kind of across your, your career is shifting things into these KDIs. You know, as I was like researching you uh, before we had this conversation, just so I didn't sound like a big doof. Uh, <laughs> and like Lee was sharing a lot of these things and like you have a whole big like article. I mean, it's, it's I think one of your, your seminal pieces. And I think it's, I don't want to like, you know, lead us too much into that before the conversation kind of goes there. But I think that that's a massive eye-opening thing that even in my career, I haven't even thought about. Is there a different way to kind of position the performance of a campaign or a marketing initiative outside of, of the binary, you know, in terms of if things are good or bad? And maybe sometimes there's definitely a position where we talk about things just are the way they are. How do we move in a direction based off of what we're seeing? And little do you know that there's someone on the analytics side setting what that benchmark is for the binary of you did good and bad. So even that benchmark can be changed by whomever's trying to say the story is good or bad. So, so. Yeah, we have seen it all the time, you know, especially as someone that doesn't have like a true analytics department or the analytics departments that have, you know, sometimes had in the past, they are bigger in scope and the, a lot of the day-to-day -day analytics or just the analyzing of the data, you know, like something like super like rudimentary and elementary are done and set by pivot tables and, and super simple formulas and those kind of things. But you sometimes will even come from the client about whatever their, their KPI and their benchmark is, and it hasn't been changed in like two or three years. And so some of these times the KPI itself, like whatever the metric you're looking at is not necessarily binary itself, but like where that line in the sand that you've drawn that. And sometimes that is antiquated or we've surpassed this. Like, why are we still looking at cost per views from three years ago? The economy and the market has changed in terms of the value of these kind of things. And that success isn't a success anymore. And so, yeah, like how arbitrary some of these lines in the sand end up being in a binary sense, in terms of talking to the client of were we successful or were we not? And at the end of the day, we're talking about something that was binary in nature and potentially arbitrary in terms of the, the designation between, you know, on or off. I think the arbitrary piece is an interesting one because 
when you think about the different people along the chain of who is fed this data, I mean, I think of certain examples in my past experience where to use cost per view as an example, a client can say, is this cost per view good or bad? We're supposed to be the experts. It's like, today, I think it's good, you know, and like, who is it to say that those metrics are good and bad? And back to your point, Shana, like, I can make whatever I want out of the data. Like, I can make it look good. I can make it look bad. It just depends what story I'm trying to tell. Numbers are numbers. They're not going to change. Like, they don't have feelings. They don't have an opinion about it. That's just what happened. Well said. Well said. Yeah, there is no feeling in data. Data does not have an emotion. It's the people that are talking about it that do. So. <laughs> Where did this sick bumper music come from all of a sudden? This is courtesy of Church Girls, aka Jonathan Campo, a Brooklyn, New York based electronic noise act used with his explicit permission. Alright, you've been thoroughly bumped. Back to the content. So you sort of have your own perspective that's a, a bit more well-informed on the product stakeholder side, having witnessed the sausage making of analytics and you know, realizing there is no Jimmy Dean. He's not real. Um, <laughs> but have you had any experiences where it was necessary or, or helpful to bring others along more towards a position of we should think more about the body of knowledge that will be useful in the future and will help us better align our strategy versus number go down. I think a lot of people out there, uh, myself included, have certainly struggled while teaching a, a group of young children that while they have a lot of merit and perhaps very rich lives ahead of them, probably not on the modeling catwalk. Um, and sort of breaking that news, but also saying it's good news. This kind of goes into the whole term data democratization and you know that's a whole push around mandating people to use data i think is how it's perceived but for me that journey is actually personal to me because it is important to bring people along with how to learn to use the data and how to evaluate what they're doing and part of that came out of i just don't want to pull the same basic reports for the same person every single week <laughs> so a little bit self-serving but at the end of the day it's going to make everyone better off because it gives you a more interesting conversation when everybody understands what the data means and how to use it properly i think that's kind of like when the magic happens and you start to get really good ideas and actually starting to feel like you can try and test something new and kind of go outside of what the data might be telling you. I think that's great. And it occurs to me that I joke that I have only one good job interview question answer, and it's to the, what is your greatest weakness? I just get really bored easily. And then I become like a very frustrated child. David is, is doing the knowing laugh of God. It's been so bad to work with this guy for so long. Like, but it's a position I talked about with Sean, our first guest, we, we kind of hit the same point in the same way where we're like, does anyone else here not want to just be doing this same shit at the same time next year? And people are like, well, of course not. And you're just like, no, 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 you do want to be doing that. And that's why when we said we are not doing the support again, you were like, but the, like, and I'm in real time realizing that it's a very negative approach. <laughs> um, but I think there's a lot in, in spinning it more positively as you did. 
but I think that's very powerful because that's been that's at least always been what's appealed to me personally is if at any point in any job I've had someone is like hey want to never have to do this again I'm just like hell yeah I've already done it once so now it's boring we're all really intelligent when we go to work and Lee, I've worked with you and you know, you're very intelligent and you know, when you're intelligent, you want to start to have the philosophical conversations about what you're doing and why you're doing it and, you know, change your approach every once in a while. But if you're kind of stuck in this sameness, uh, you'll just never get there. So, yeah. (laughs) I mean, thank you for saying that despite the fact that I look illiterate next to you. (laughs) I appreciate it. Uh, My brain is small and smooth compared to Shanna's, but anyway. Yeah, so I had a, um, you were talking about like one of your, your interview, your, one of your favorite interview questions. And as someone who has interviewed with you for my first position in, in digital marketing, favorite interviewee type line, and I kind of cringe every time I say it, but I, I know that like it can get a good response. And the term is some line about using data to uncover actionable insights. That's the line. And I'm sure I, I used it in my conversation and interview with Lee at Moxie. I guess it didn't go horribly wrong because... Uh, well, you know. you know, famously, I think I showed you, I still have my notes from that day and it's just your name underlined. And then I took notes. It's a blank piece of paper. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> wow, I did, I did well. I think yeah, you wrote notes on my resume, I do believe. But it's maybe, still like funny, yeah. it's a funny visual. That, that Well, I still use the same notebook from years ago, and I laugh every time I flip past that page, and it's completely blank. I don't know how you still have space in a notebook, potentially, was like four or five years ago. Well, the answer is right there, and that I took no I notes on your job interview. I don't <laughs> take notes. <laughs> I have 600 oh. headers. <laughs> Multiple on a page. No, but my question to, I guess, to Shana is, what are your thoughts on this like whole actionable insights or insights to action kind of thing? I, I feel like it's jargony. I mean, I'll, I'll admit that I've used it in that jargonistic, puffery kind of way, hoping for the best, but sometimes there are no insights and sometimes the insights aren't actionable. So like, as someone who does this probably at much more frequency than, than I do and, and has had way more experience at the analytical side of things, what's your take on this actionable insights kind of terminology? It's interesting because you can't get away from this and, and you have to say this in a job interview, frankly. You have to say that you're using data and doing something with it. And this kind of goes back to the whole movement around data democratization, which, you know, in some places it feels like you're just being mandated to use data in some way. And what started happening is that the analytics teams were saying, you know, we can do all this cool stuff. We can turn insights into action. And and what that actually meant for analytics teams was not only are they taking the data, now they're actually putting the, the value and the emotions behind it to kind of create these insights And if you're an analytics person and you're not really in tune with the strategy that was employed, you actually can't do that. So it's kind of a weird, weird system that starts to happen when you're on an analytics team is that you're just starting to kind of try to make things up and make the data meaningful. And that would be the insights part. And then furthermore, you have the action part, which was kind of impressed on the analytics team as well, and really saying, well, now what should we do about it? And the fact is the data won't really ever tell you what to do. It's not going to say tomorrow at 12 p.m. you should press pause on your campaign. 
that's a decision that's made by the subject matter expert ultimately. And so, you know, when I hear this insights to action, it's kind of one of those things that's easier said than done. It actually takes a lot of work and a high level of collaboration to even do something like this. And, you know, if you have a separate analytics team, that means that you're pulling them into strategy conversations. You are showing them how to measure their ugly baby, so to say. You are giving the requirements before you've even done anything. And then at the end of the campaign or feature launch, you're actually meeting and collaborating together to say what to do next. But the data won't ever do that. And if you're ever getting a report from an analytics team that's saying next step should be this, they're making that up because <laughs> they have to, because it's kind of impressed upon you that you have to do this insights to action process without having the process stood up. Do you think there's a better solution to that? I think there is no right solution actually. And it's kind of a, it's a very personal journey between the team. And so, you know, once you can kind of get past that, I'm not measuring you in terms of good and bad, but we're going to work together and collaborate and whatever that process is, you know, I think is always a very collaborative one. I've, I've had a lot of jobs actually, and I don't think I've ever done it the same way at every single place. And, and I, you know, everyone has a different starting point of, of how they want to use the data and their, their background with data. So you do kind of have to read the room, so to speak, in terms of how you want to do this. With analytics normally being the third party in the like analysis of the campaign, you really weren't part of, of setup and you know, launch and optimizations and you kind of get the data just kind of at the end. Is it fair to push insights onto the analytics team based off of the data that they have uncovered? No, no, it's it's not. What you're doing actually is you're you're seeking out a why. Like why did this happen? Why is the data saying this? And the why is not encoded into the data. The why is actually encoded into your strategy. So you have to be very clear about what your strategy was and have everybody in the loop of what that was so that you can honestly evaluate what the data is saying about that why. And that's really the big thing that gets missed and partially why I feel really passionate about turning KPIs into KDIs, the, the key diagnostic indicator, is because that process actually, you have to bring the why to the table and to be able to diagnose what's going on. I think that's a great segue into KDIs themselves. And you know, maybe we just get a, a basic overview of KDIs, which you've written about very eloquently and clearly previously. But yeah, I think this is a great opportunity to sort of get right into um, the KPI to KDI why and, and sort of process. So as we mentioned earlier, the KPIs are kind of forcing that you did good or you did bad, which is an emotional journey around the, the data, which as we mentioned, the data is not an emotional being. And so when you think about what a key diagnostic indicator, even just from the name itself, it removes that pressure of performance. And it actually angles the data and kind of frames the data in a sense of what am I diagnosing? What am I trying to learn? And so that was kind of the pivot for the overall naming convention. Under the, under the hood of a key diagnostic indicator is what are you trying to learn and what metrics can you assign your hypothesis that is kind of unhackable? 
And so I think you, this one will ring true for all of you three, which is you can change the cost per view by not spending as much, right? So that's not a great KPI because that's a hackable KPI and that's not going to measure your overarching strategy, which, you know, probably had to do with the way that you built the content strategy and the different, you know, partners that you decided to, to run on. And so what is that metric or, or really you should probably have three or four metrics. They're going to help you diagnose, did your strategy work? We talk all the time about hacking KPIs. I think even came up in our, in our tightly rolled KPIs uh, first episode, just about like you can manipulate KPIs pretty easily depending upon like what the KPI is and those kind of things. But we talk almost ad nauseumly at, at a, about a joke of, running search ads that just no one clicks on. Just absolutely running like search as awareness and just trying not to have people click on your ads. It's funny because that sounds like just a pain punishment and pointlessness experiment. There was a consulting project we did for a Fortune 50 company that wanted their KPI for search was impression share. And after I explained, well, it's a medium that's purchased on the click, the entire optimization methodology that is managed by the platform is to clicks. So the only way to get more impressions without adding budget is to drive a lower click-through rate. And they were like, so how do we do that? <laughs> and I was just <laughs> like, well, you could do that. And then I had to admit, I became like perversely fascinated. I was like, we would simply have to write the worst search ads in the world. <laughs> um, I'm always fascinated with the idea of the worst ads in the world. Back when we were running a lot of YouTube, we became really distressed by how high the view rate on literally any YouTube ad was. And we were just like, this algorithm is just finding the sleeping and the dead. It's incredible. There's no Never way. Never forget the nine hour live stream YouTube ads that had a 15% view rate. And, was, and a completion rate that was higher than you would think. There was the, the historical part of that is like we were running campaigns and like we were seeing like view rates around like 12 to 14 percent. And we're like, this is great. You know, it's a, it's an opt in, you know, true view. Things are fantastic. And then it seemed like overnight it just increased by 133 percent. Like we were seeing no, they, like they did something. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It's like there's something that changed in terms of now. 12%, 14%, you're running a bad campaign. If you're not up towards 21 to 25% view yeah. rate, you've done something horribly wrong. And that's Which, where this, are we just finding people who have fallen asleep in front of their laptops with their YouTube browser on and just like autoplay is just happening? Uh, and these people and it, just aren't yeah. opting out? And it led to the insane discussion because someone said, well, what we should do is we should run a YouTube ad that no one could conceivably watch. And then we hit the insane moment of what video even exists that you could say is universally distasteful. And of course, you know, people were like, I don't know. I mean, I listen to literal field recordings of industrial noise for fun. And we were like, what's even abrasive to humans universally now? KPIs can get you to this place where something that seems like a perverse and horrible thought experiment, like writing a search ad that no one could ever click. Well, actually that would have worked out well for a certain extremely large online retailer, according to them, which is insane. It's madness. <laughs> But I think it's interesting that, that that was the ask because, you know, what what was the rationale behind it? What was their strategy that they were going afterwards? And, you know, if that isn't conveyed to everybody on the team, it becomes really difficult to say, great, we're not going to 
change our KPI and, and do impression share and not look at click-through rate anymore, which is, you know, kind of the standard that you look at for efficiency for search. So <laughs> then how much of that is wanting to do something different and hack the way that you're, you know, evaluating your performance of like, well, we can come out and say, we drove the most impressions for the least amount of money ever run on search. And it's like, well, did that move the needle in your business at all? Like, what's the point of these arbitrary and strange KPIs? I think this is a perfect example too, because in, in the product world, you'll see you're trying to evaluate things that haven't been built yet. And when you're building your strategy, and where media, you know, there's quite a few benchmarks built and you, you can kind of support your strategy some way. But, you know, if you're doing something that has never been done before, what happens is it comes down to a matter of opinion. And so, you know, one person will have an opinion of where the button should go or how the page should look. And the other person has an opposite opinion. And so you start to get into this strange world and almost it, it can turn combated if you don't really know how to, to change course and, and to use data in terms to guide the different personalities. But that's where like the KDIs come in handy because to build the KDIs, you have to have a hypothesis and that's what it comes down to. And so everybody's entitled to their opinion at this point, because it's enough hypothesis, you're taking the emotion out of it. And so everyone can have their own hypothesis. You can have differing hypothesis and you can actually test both hypotheses in one simple test. And so, you know, if you're kind of thinking about it that way, it becomes a little bit more fun from the team, kind of that soft skills, right? How do you use data where you're kind of like, well, I think this and here's my hypothesis. Let's see which one's right. And that's, that's like a more fun dynamic as someone just saying, here's what we're going to do and not saying why and, um, you know, giving more context. I love the a, a key element of, moving to a KDI framework is acknowledging and productively embracing the fact that as, as you've put it, everything is still actually relationship driven. And as much as we talk about increasing automation in a machine oriented workplace, the human enterprise is what it all serves. And so no, no matter how much it allegedly becomes more about automation and more about allegedly inhuman objective points in space and, and weighted quantities, I feel like there's this weird inverse effect where like, that's actually increasing the weight of the human enterprise factor. <laughs> like it, parts of our jobs have become so alien and distant from us that it's more apparent than ever that all we have is each other. And that's who this is all for. And I've multiple times found myself entrapped in this weird, it's not becoming more logical thing. elaborate a little bit on how like KDIs are not only a way to make everything more more truly learning and information development oriented but are also fully built and ready for the relationship driven world aka the real world the whole point about the KDIs is really about how do you build relationships around data and of course everyone's heard the term data driven which data-driven means that you are using data to make decisions. And so that's a very strict way to think about data because it's very rare 
that you're going to have data tell you exactly what to do. And it's actually very rigorous in terms of getting the data set up to tell you exactly what to do. And so most people are not data driven. Personally, I'm probably 90% data inspired and data informed and not data driven just because it's so difficult to do. And so the idea around the relationships and coming up with new strategies and being able to work together and how you use the KDIs to do that comes down to the hypothesis and being able to come up with a new strategy that the data is not going to tell you what to do. And it's feeling okay with putting out new ideas and then figuring out how you're going to measure it at the end of the day. And that's really where the relationships can be built and kind of the trust even with your coworkers around this person has an interesting hypothesis. Let's run with it and see what happens. And then, you know, at the end, learn from it. Maybe it wasn't the right strategy, but at the end of the day, we set up our data to be able to get some interesting insight out of it to come up with maybe a new route that we want to take. I think KDIs should be something that sweeps across the industry as something that is now the new three letters in the alphabet soup across digital marketing in particular. Mostly in terms of like it takes the combativeness like out of a lot of things. It takes the the binary success or failure out of things. It moves everything away from one of the conversations that I always have or I've started having recently in my current position. We are partners and not vendors. So there's going to be a lot of the times where we tell the client what they need to know and what they need to hear versus just all, always saying like, yes, or what we ever think might be a platitude and, and those kind of things. And we still operate on KPIs. And I think there's a lot of times where like a campaign maybe doesn't go to plan. And so when I'm preparing or my team's preparing for a report on that, there's kind of like, well, let's get ready for a tough conversation because we missed our KPIs for whatever reason, you know, and we can explain them or we can't, but like it precedes the call, even from the agency talking to, to the client in terms of, we know it's going to be a tough conversation or how is the client going to react to this because it's a KPI instead of here is the KDI and here's the investigation that we've done into this and here's what's causing this. And now the whole conversation is now away from being something as a success or a failure for this like check-in. And again, things being check-ins, like they can always change next week and a month from now or whatever, but it takes that taste out of the mouth in terms of being sour or, you know, or sweet. Now it's just a conversation about here's how we can move forward in terms of this is what we're seeing and this is where we dug in and here's the optimizations or here's the pivot or here's the switch based off of those kind of things instead of it just being black and white. And I think that's probably good for the course of a campaign. Things need to be based on KDIs. But at the end of a campaign, I think it's still to the client and everyone's best interest of being, did this succeed to how we were expecting it to? And still having a KPI and going back to like having a singular KPI, but then also allowing multiple KDIs throughout the course of the campaign. That should just be something that if only one person takes from this podcast and interjects it into the world, and hopefully that'll spread, we'll take that slow gain in terms of bringing this into the world, because I think it's going to change a whole way of how this client services, professional services approach to just data, to performance marketing, to kind of across the board. It just sets it up for, as you've even like laid it out, more relationship driven in terms of you can trust us that we're doing the best that we can for you. And here's all the, the reasons that we know that we are doing or moving things in the right direction, which is huge. There's so many things right about what you said. And, you know, I've been a part of too many reports where you have that feeling of you've personally done something wrong because the data is going to be perceived as negative 
something to note around the key diagnostic indicators is that you want to set up the key diagnostic indicators to actually be predictive of your KPI. And so when you think about a KPI like revenue, that is actually a lagged metric. And so it's harder to see for brands that are e-commerce because you are hopefully within the same session driving that conversion. So it seems like an immediate metric that's being triggered. But actually, I think most smart marketers and, and product people know this is that there's a lot of touch points that happen and relationship building that happens that comes before that checkout and that purchase. And while that trigger feels immediate, it's actually a very lagged metric. And so for the KDIs, you're actually looking for something more upstream in terms of what is the metric that is a lever that I can try and change and learn from that ultimately will predict what's happening in revenue. You put it really well there that ultimately you do need to be accountable to some of these KPIs, but how you get there should be a little bit different. So Shane, also- I'm going to ask a nerdy question kind of on the heels of that. As like a analytics person and in the vein of KDIs, what are your feelings on multi-touch attribution and how that plays into this whole kind of diagnostic indication of whether a campaign is doing well? That's a really interesting question and a difficult question. The the multi-touch attribution measurement kind of sits in the middle. When you're setting up your multi-touch attribution model, you're actually making decisions about which channels are most important. And so the data that you're going to get back already has that sort of bias built into it. And, you know, you might have some models that are algorithmic and the, the algorithm tells you what the channel is most important, but you really need the strategy and what you think your customer journey strategy is to benchmark against what that attribution model is telling you. And so if you're coming to the table with the hypothesis saying that your video awareness ad is actually going to drive downstream purchases and therefore you're personally placing a lot of weight on that channel or that ad, but the model is telling you that it wasn't that important. Well, you need to be able to understand why that is and is the model actually, for lack of a better word, kind of lying to you in a a way? What is it not seeing that you're seeing? So in a way it can be used as a diagnostic indicator because if you can use it to benchmark against your strategy and kind of use it to reconcile the differences of what you thought versus what it's telling you, that it can be used as a KDI. But I think out of the box solution, you know, and you're just saying that's how the world works, that's kind of moving you into the direction of now you're missing KPIs and, you know, revenue marks. So yeah, that one's a good question. Kind of a little bit of, depends on how you use that model. <laughs> I guess something that everyone needs to be slightly careful about, algorithmic-based anything, but mostly algorithmic-based attribution models. An algorithm is not data. An algorithm does have human bias in it because it's written by a human. It's already taking what is known and interpreted, and then it is a bunch of set parameters based off of if this, then that's. And so I think where things can go kind of awry is with the trust of the data or as MTA kind of sits in this middle space as kind of a hybrid, it can operate very much as elements of a KD but it's still attribution, which means it's still very much heavily in the the KPI camp. And it tries to like hybridize that or kind of disguise it a little self, but it's still 
as an algorithm based off of assumptions that some human and some place kind of had. I mean, Lee may or may not remember ever making this statement, but we had a conversation early on talking about vetting partners. And he was just was like, if someone ever just says that their secret sauce is their algorithm, he's like, run away. Because their algorithm could be Larry in Kansas City, you know, like not, <laughs> not a machine, a person like just it's always an adjunct professor in a math department at a large state university that was only on staff for three months. And so if you're like, or like, we might need you to recook the sauce. They're like, damn it. <laughs> like we've got to email that guy back. That's a brilliant thing to say. And what, when you think about what an algorithm is, it's looking at data in the past of what's happened and it's repeating some process. It could just be one plus one. You know, that could be just, an algorithm can be a very simple process. It's just repeating over time. And the output that it's going to give you is based on what we saw last time, this is what you should get this time. And that takes away the human thought that says maybe things could be different or maybe things should be different. That's kind of one of the epiphanies I had in my career where when you're using these algorithms to be data-driven and have them tell you what to do next, but at the end of the day, you're the human and, and you get to decide what's next and you don't need that data point to tell you that. I think there's also a lot coming into B2B marketing or those kind of elements in terms of the purpose of your campaign is only driving like MQLs, marketing qualified leads. And you just like had like, like let the system, Facebook, Google, LinkedIn, you name it, generate these conversions for you, whatever, like however you're sourcing your leads. The algorithm is just to find people that look like they will take this action and hope to God that they're actually going to do it. And I sometimes take like a big pause to that. Yes, the total number of, of these leads are, are fantastic and they're wonderful. And I'm never going to like look a gift horse in the mouth, except when we have to then convert these leads into actually like SQLs, you know, and like Google doesn't know what I'm looking for in terms of the conversion from, is this a quality lead or is it just a lead? And I think that's another big question mark that you need to have about algorithms. Yes, you need big number, algorithm will get you that, but it doesn't know the context. It doesn't know the specificity that we could potentially have. And that kind of goes towards like the humaning of the data to tie it back into the last conversation, you know, okay. not even, um, the Mondelez yeah. Rehab Hour, sponsored yeah. by David Shola. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking about this exact thing today. Algorithms that look for people to do a certain thing or algorithms that are serving up personalized ads or personalized features, they'll never tell you why they did it. And so you can use that as a tactic. You'll never learn from it, though. And, and you have to have a very clear strategy of what you're feeding that algorithm. And you need to set it up in a way that you'll actually learn from why it was serving certain things. And so in your example of finding you know, qualified leads, the way you might do that is actually set up two or three different campaigns and run very different content and make assumptions about that people like this or have this behavior are going to prefer this content over the other content. And you can test that because you can see which campaign did better, but you have that hypothesis around the tactic that you're using. So now you can understand why the algorithm might be working the way it is. So, you know, it becomes really important to, to always have that why, why are you doing something, you know, as opposed to just blindingly have this tactic that everybody's using, therefore I should use it. <laughs>
Is there a, a standard toolkit on offer or sort of a, a distillable start for anyone out there hearing this who is interested in moving from the KPI to the KDI? Yeah, I would say look up what a hypothesis is. And, and actually, when I started down this journey, I had to Google what a hypothesis is because I think it was, you know, since seventh grade that I had learned <laughs> what it was exactly. And start thinking about how can you build hypotheses about your strategy and what you're doing. And that, and that comes down to, in our world, I've kind of distilled it down to four buckets of things that you can use to build your hypothesis. One is the audience. Generally, you don't want to use a persona. Better to use a audience that is defined on a specific behavior because that's a little bit more measurable. It also takes a little bit of bias out of the equations too. So, you know, different audience definitions could be people who visited a certain page or people who have visited a website or different types of websites. Then you want to look at what they're doing. What is your expectation? for them to do. So, you know, in the case of the qualified leads, you might say that people that go to Amazon will click this download brochure. And so that's kind of the what defining, and that's going to start to tease out your KDI actually a little bit. And then the, the next one is the why. Why do we think that people are doing it? What's their motivation? And that's, you know, we were talking about the why is so important. So this is the part that the data will never tell you, the insight that you'll never get from the data. And that's why it's critical that you document what the why is. So what is the motivation behind people going to Amazon and downloading this brochure? And so you have to put a lot of thought into why you think people would be motivated to download that brochure. And, you know, you always want to frame it as the person that is doing it. Not we think people will do it because our brochure was really cool. So think about really that motivation behind the person doing it. And then lastly, to build a hypothesis is the outcome. And so this is where you can partner with an analytics person, or if you're doing your own analytics, you know, you can start to think about what the outcome you would expect. And so you might say people with this motivation and done these things might do it 10% at a higher rate than people who didn't go to Amazon in the first place. And so that's kind of start setting a benchmark, which, you know, we're saying don't set the benchmarks, but it's just going to give you a relative value ahead of seeing the data that's saying, where did I expect to be? Because that's going to tell you, well, I was really off or, you know, I was kind of in the, in the right frame of mind. And so once you have that hypothesis built, you'll actually be able to say, okay, what are the metrics that I need to look at underneath the hood of that hypothesis? that will tell me, you know, ultimately, how did this journey perform? That's a fantastically succinct and yet comprehensive start. I, I think it, it contains a lot of different important elements, everything from being more customer-centric and agent-based in your thinking and how is someone acting versus, oh, here's our completely inert marketing asset. Let's pretend this is the catalyst to every possible human interaction. And it also dunks on personas, which, God, do I hate the persona audience things. I used to, episode. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it could be. I, I had a former coworker who we got a big kick out of text each other joke blue guy audiences we thought of. I ally moms. You know, <laughs> or like dads who wear capri pants. Or like jazz uncles. People love to build these persona audiences and the the parameters that are concrete are so limited yeah. and open. 
And so many data dictionaries, like 90% of the audiences are fundamentally the same. So anytime anything slams personas, I'm like, yes. They're inherently biased because you're presuming that there's some characteristic about somebody that is going to make them have a preference for something. But if you're thinking about your product that way, that means you're excluding the other half of people that might not have that characteristic from your strategy altogether, but maybe they do want to perform that action. So it's not a good place to come up with a strategy. (laughs) Yeah, I will never forget one of the things David and I worked on together. I got in trouble for renaming some of the audiences because I didn't realize how wed some of these people were to the names of the personas, one of which the only one I remember was productivity nuts and I was just like I'm not even typing that into a custom affinity audience like I I just what does that even mean but like to your point it's like how could this this home improvement product how could you define these four different personas when it's like has yard needs product you know (laughs) that's where I I just will never forget (laughs) I'll never forget the height of custom affinity craziness which is basically one of our agency's central products we didn't say it but our, our main product was duping complete roofs into believing that Google custom affinity audiences were meaningful. If you were a client of a certain agency between 2014 and 2017 and you're listening to this, you got got. But our, our biggest disaster was we created a bunch of absolutely ridiculous audiences for old smoky moonshine. David, I think you remember these. I think Southern Gentry roughly was one. I'm pretty sure like Frat Lords was one or something. Oh, Hadley made that audience called Husband Material. Husband Material. Which was just people who were into like guns. They accidentally got applied to a certain entertainment client's account. Like it was a complete mistake that these BS custom affinity audiences were put on, but they quote, performed really well. And so not only were they discovered by the client, but when we didn't put them on the next plan, they were like, where are those high performing audiences? (laughs) And it was like... Do you mean the audience is based on five random search terms that someone carelessly typed into Google ads and gave a funny name? And they were like, yeah, like we don't, we don't know what we're going to do without, you know, like crazy car crashers, just so much smoke and mirrors. I remember, I, I think it was off old smoky when those names were um, rolling around either. I was on the account before or after that, but there was one that I remember in terms of custom affinity was for uh, Georgia Pacific and was for Stainmaster, And we were running all of those like carpet cleaner ads. And uh, I had just like had to create like a custom affinity audience. I'm like, who, is, how am I going to create this audience the, to like reach? And I came up with some like keywords, but I remember like naming it just carpet baggers as, as a joke. I'm just like putting a funny name on it. And then I didn't know that it was going to be pulled in to Google data studio when I like created my report and we just like did the report and like exported it as a PDF. And the client was like, carpet baggers. And I was like, Oh Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's the name I gave the audience and just like owned it. And they were like, okay. And they just like, let it go from there. But it just was, you know, and that's the nature of Google affinity, like our custom affinity audiences at wit's end marketing person. And they just have to name it something. And it's always like something that gives them a personal like joy or kick out of. And then sometimes the system just pulls the name in and is visible to the entire marketing org that you're presenting to. I remember when Lee made that a homework assignment for all of us, where we got assigned a random person on the team and we had to create the custom affinity audience of that person. Wow. 
How did that go over? <laughs> well, <laughs> I can probably find that document. <laughs> Considering this was the team that would take photos of me standing or sitting in awkward positions and snap it to each other with the caption, your body is a wonderland. Um, <laughs> I am guessing that some of these custom affinity audiences were probably not nice. <laughs> In poor taste. <laughs> yeah. But hilariously well done. Yeah, I, I mean, humor was a KPI for, for this, honestly. <laughs> I remember when someone made me the husband material thing, they were like, can you talk to whoever did this? And I was like, hey, Adley, what's in the husband material audience? And she's like, people who like guns. <laughs> and I was like... <laughs> Why is it called husband material? And she's like, I just thought it was very funny. <laughs> I was like, well, it is very funny. You're correct. But anyway, whew, well, Shana, thank you for taking us through all this and, you know, illuminating our audience on, on the magic of KDIs. It's sort of, I think, time for our classic question. I, although it's unfair because you, you've actually already brought something, you know, such a concrete case of something that is hilariously not great in marketing KPIs and, and could be improved with the KDIs. But you know, we're we're gonna we're gonna two for one you here and, and you know put to you the conventional question by saying that you can't answer KDIs and, and KPIs. What's something that you think currently is, is hilariously bad that's happening in, in the world of, of digital marketing and digital product? And how do you think it could be improved? You know, what, what's your ax to grind out there besides your, your already very well ground ax of the KPI? Yeah, I put so much thought into the, the KPIs versus KDIs. Let's see. It's not good enough. Yeah, no, we, we've already gotten so much, but that's our job as hosts. Just always okay, grubbing I for more. I do have one, or actually I probably have more than one, but the one that's coming to mind is um, the whole idea around agile. You know, the whole idea is that you want to leave enough space open in your roadmap and timeline to, you know, be able to adapt with the, the learnings that you have. But unfortunately, what I'm noticing is that just means people don't have a plan. And, you know, when they don't have a plan, you're not going anywhere and there's nothing to actually optimize with that space that you've left open. And so, you know, in more recent times, you know, maybe a few years back, I started coming to the table with the plan of like, here's our timeline and things that we should do. You know, the response is, well, that's waterfall. How dare you? <laughs> And so uh, that really grinds my gears because I'm one that likes to have a plan. I like to know where I'm going. And I think Agile works in some cases where you have a product that's almost fully optimized. And, you know, there might be some tweaks that you need to make. But again, going back to our conversation, if you're doing something truly different and you're going out there and putting yourself out there and trying to do some growth hacking, that you have to have a plan. <laughs> so... Oh, yeah, God. A Agile and growth hacking in the same segment is exactly right. <laughs> like, you know, like everyone who's ever been like, yeah, I'm a growth hacker. What do you have? The full stack. <laughs> and they're like, what's the full stack? What I growth hack? <laughs> like, all those people also have their Agile coach certification somewhere down in there. 
2006 to 2008 rodeo clown 2008 to 2010 agile coach it's it's just wild like whoever thought that you could just directly bundle and sell minimal structure in a naturally chaotic environment as a brilliant strategy yeah you need to be flexible for sure but you need to be flexible against the plan that you have in place <laughs> so. that's a great way to put it Shana, thank you so much for coming on. I think this has been a fantastic episode. Yeah, thank, uh, thank you three for having me. I, I feel like I could talk all day with, with all of you. So Same. Honestly, like we'll probably have you back on at some point. Yeah, you already said you have one more thing that grinds your gears, so we'll, we'll keep that away for now. You know, that's, <laughs> that's a future premium access episode. Um, but thanks we'll for, that for when we actually Patreon get- level. <laughs> Yeah. Well, just so we can start getting some sponsored live reads, you know, uh, we'll tuck it behind the ad roll. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, this has been Bad Impressions, the podcast mostly about digital marketing and other things that go online and try to persuade people of things. Uh, you can reach us if you have any feedback on the show, if you'd like to be a guest, if you have any great guest ideas at Sadmin, that's S-A-D-M-I-N, at badimpressions.online. Or just drop a comment on any podcast medium where comments are droppable. We will read it. Randy is an avid reader. Randy, how many books did you read this year? 105 and counting. I think she could get through a few podcast comments. So, you know, be wordy. It's fine. Anyway, we hope we left a bad impression. <laughs> <laughs>